Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Penny Wordner. Penny is one of Canada's most distinguished consultants in the field of sports psychology. She has worked with many Olympic-level athletes, coaches, and teams over a span of 13 Summer and Winter Olympic Games. From the 1988 Winter Summer Olympic, Winter Olympics in Calgary to the more recent 2016 Summer Games in Rio and the 2018 Games in Pyeongchang. Penny represented Canada in the 1500-meter in Montreal at the 1976 Summer Olympics. Penny claimed a bronze medal in the 8 100 meter and then in at the 1971 and 79 Pan Am Games, and further won bronze in the 1500 meter at the 1978 Commonwealth Games. She would have competed at the Olympic Games in Russia in 1980 were it not for an unfortunate boycott. Penny currently serves as the Dean of the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary, which is currently ranked the number one school of sports science in North America and number seven global. Her research is in the area of lifelong learning, particularly in the area of high-performance coaching, women in sport, and the use of heart rate variability, biofeedback, and neurofeedback for ultimate performance in high-performance sport. She is also a mother and a wonderful human being, and I'm honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Penny. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> now you have to live up to the. Uh, That's binary. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, take me back. You uh, you were born where? I, I actually never uh, learned. Oh, that. I was. Yeah, I was born in Ottawa. Yes. Oh, okay. So, yep. Oh, we were an Ottawa girl. I was an Ottawa boy. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. It's a commonality that we yeah. have. And you you grew up there and and sort of stayed there, or did you move around? What was your life like? Um, I grew up there and my early career in sport was certainly uh, out of Ottawa. Um, and then I, you know, I ended up with an American coach, Jack Daniels, ultimately, who really helped me perform the best I could. So I ended up training with him for a number of years in Texas. I didn't do my education there because I was before, I was way long time ago for scholarships, really, um, certainly for women anyways, in the U.S. So I was just down there living for a bit in Texas. So that was a great experience. And then I did live in France for a couple of years and run out of season for a French club that provided me with a lot of uh, services that helped me really become world class for a couple of years out of France. Cool. Well, I want to go back for a second because you said you had a coach named Jack Daniels in Texas. That's <laughs> yes, that is his name. <laughs> interesting name to have in Texas uh, as a coach back in the day. What, uh, what actually drew you to running when you were like a little girl? What, what, how did you explore that or find that? Yeah, I think it's quite a common experience. I mean, you know, you know, back in the 
the 60s. I mean, my parents weren't very active, but they knew it was important for their kids. So I had two older brothers. So of course, as the the younger girl in the family, I wanted to do everything they did. So they, you know, it is quite a common story, I think. So, you know, they played sports and so I wanted to follow them. And, you know, one of my brothers got into track and field at the time, as it was called, athletics now. And so I wanted to do that. And I love doing it. Um, I love trying to be good at something. And in high school, I, I did play team, you know, at the high school level, I played team sports, but I really was not a team player. I really wanted to live and die by my, you know, I played, ba- I mean, I'm not very tall, so I played basketball and I was pretty good in high school. And then the rest of the girls didn't really care. And then in volleyball, I sat on the bench and I didn't like that either. So <laughs> I decided track was for me. <laughs> <laughs> and with your parents not being necessarily um, sport, were they sport people or they weren't sport people? No, they weren't sport people. Uh, they grew up originally in Toronto, so they were just business folks. But they they knew being active was important, and so they absolutely encouraged that and certainly supported all of us in, in what we did. But for sure, my parents supported me as I got better and better and needed more money to be able to do what I was doing. So did you have a natural affinity for running? Like you, the 800, 1500 meters, kind of that mix between being able to sprint and being able to, you know, run fast and have some kind of aerobic capacity was that something that you just had a general affinity for? I guess so. And I think, you know, it took me a long time to learn how to work hard for sure. I mean, in the beginning, when I was young, I wanted to be a sprinter because I thought that was way easier. And, you know, every event's difficult in its own way, but for sure in my mind at the time, Ooh, let me run the hundred and 200, but clearly I was not fast enough. So um, yeah, so I ended up and had success running at eight and 15. Um, Mm. and of course at that time, back in the day in the seventies, I mean, the 1500 only became an Olympic event in 1972. And, you know, at that time, the 3000 didn't become an Olympic event until 1984. So I wasn't very interested in running I mean, I, I was a pretty good 1500 meter runner, um, internationally, 800, pretty good, but I probably would have been better at even longer distances, but they weren't Olympic events at that time. Mm -hmm. So I certainly wasn't drawn to them for that reason. Tell me about, um, well, when did you really know how old were you or when did you know that you were good, a good enough runner to compete at an international level? Like you were, you actually could explore the dream of, of going to the Olympics. Yeah, probably at about, um, well, probably about 16. I mean, I think, I honestly can't remember. I mean, I could go back and look, but I, I think sometime at 17 or 18, I was on a junior national international team. So somewhere in there, I started sort of running decently well at the national level. So, you know, I wanted to, I mean, it is, it's, it's what I find. One of the things I find attractive about sport is really, internally just trying to be better and better yourself and I think that's what I I mean obviously I also did like winning and all those kinds of things but I really like the piece of how much faster could I run this year or next week or and Mm -hmm. so I started to see that happen and Mm -hmm. I don't know it just I found it very attractive to try to be better and better at something. Cool do you remember that period of time between 72 and 76 because 72 is a very obviously a very controversial Olympics with what happened with uh, the, the, the stuff in Munich and the shootings and everything else. And then you go into Montreal, which is actually a really big Canadian event 
was there, what was your energy or feelings around competing at, in Montreal at the Canadian, Canadian Olympic games, mm-hmm. uh, being Canadian, and then also kind of the foreshadowing or post-shadowing of what happened in 72? Yeah, it's a really interesting journey, I think, because, you know, I started to run very well internationally in sort of 70, 71, and I, I um, won a few medals internationally, et cetera. And so 72 was going to be my first Olympics. And I, back in the day, we used to have all sorts of big international meets down in New York City and Boston, et cetera. And Um, But I was going to university full-time too, so I actually got quite sick in the winter but didn't take enough time off for the 72 trials. So I missed making that team by one-tenth of a second in the 1,500 meters. Oh, God, this is such old stories. But So I was obviously incredibly depressed, and now when I actually deal with athletes, I mean, it's a great great example of situational depression because for sure was I depressed. And so I said, I'm not running anymore. I'm not watching the Olympics and all that, you know, things that we do when we're so, you know, hurt and upset and embarrassed and all those kinds of things. But, of course, obviously that didn't happen. But but I had lots of friends that went to that call, you know, I guess I didn't call them colleagues and teammates that made that team. And of course it was quite devastating to see what happened in Munich. Um, And it was quite looking back now, quite fascinating to see how different individual athletes reacted to that. Um, Some athletes said, I can't compete. Like this is too, too terrible to even think about competing in sport. And others were pretty oblivious. So I found that quite an interesting phenomena. Um, and a difficult one, but, you know, I did recommit, um, and made sure I didn't make the dumb mistakes that I had made before. Um, and, and, and that was part of, um, you know, and I found a different coach and Jack Daniels, actually, that is his real name, but he's, uh, is an American. He won two Olympic medals historically, again, in modern pentathlon, which is a totally different sport, but he's a PhD in exercise phys plus exercise physiology plus had been an Olympic athlete. So in my mind, definitely two pretty key ingredients for a great coach and very knowledgeable. So there's no doubt in my mind without him, I would not have been the athlete I was. Mm. Um, And I was really well prepared going into 76. Um, And so, you know, won those trials pretty confidently, et cetera. And and Montreal was a fabulous Olympics um, being at home. And walking into that stadium, like, it was an unbelievable experience walking in and having Canadians, you know, I think we're, we're a different nation now. But back then, I, I think we for sure didn't uh, demonstrate those emotions very mm. outwardly. And we certainly did in 76. So it was pretty cool. Um, really cool. But I didn't, I didn't run very well there. I, um, I didn't make the final. I had no idea really at that point what real international sport looked like. So, you know, then in the next quad leading up to Moscow, I had a much different, again, preparation plan for actually understanding how to run well internationally. Mm. And I remember then, t- talking to you about that when you, uh, and, and the disappointment around that, maybe you could sort of explore yeah. that a little bit, that must have been very difficult. Yeah, and if I was to think about it too much, I could probably start crying or get angry again. It's hilarious. I mean, I don't <laughs> think about it. I, I Otherwise, I'd be pretty dysfunctional, I think, but at this point in time, but... But for sure at that time, if I go back and think about it, I mean, you know, that would have been for sure a, a good Olympics for me. I mean, I, I'm, I don't think I would have won a medal in 1500 because there were lots of women taking 
you know, that was that was still the time of where we we knew people were taking illegal substances, but we weren't catching them. Um, we weren't doing anything about it, in fact. Um, but there was obviously within the community lots of talk. But I um, I knew once the U.S. boycotted that we would do the same in Canada. Um, not to get too political, but I so I remember I so remember being in uh, Europe. Um, getting ready to, you know, go to some event and meeting up with the women's rowing team. And I knew some of the rowers because I'd gone to school with them and, and said, you know what, we're not going to go if, if Carter is boycotting, we will do exactly the same. And of course that is what we did. And they all went, oh, that's not going to happen, but it is what we did. And it was really devastating. I actually wrote a column in a, in the newspaper saying, you know, if we did one other thing as a country against Russia, who was invading Afghanistan, that was the first of, you know, poor Afghanistan, Afghanistan's woes, um, you know, I would be happy to boycott. But if the only thing we're doing is not at that time sending 100 athletes to the Olympics, I don't disagree with it. And, and I would still take that stand. Mm. Um, you know, it was very much I would argue a facade. So we didn't get to go to the Olympics um, mm. and many countries didn't. And many did, you know, Britain made a different decision and let their, their governing bodies decide. And of course the athletes went. Um, so it was a very, very difficult time for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is this, when is sort of the transition period from you and how does that all play out from you being an athlete to you becoming more of an academic and determining that you're going to get into <laughs> psychology? How does that all kind of roll for you? Yeah, so I had, by, long before that I completed, I was actually sort of doing my master's degree at the same time, and I ended up doing my research on transition from sport because what I saw, and it was very much related to that boycott, because what I saw was that those of us, there were sort of two, two distinct groups. I mean, those of us who, who that was sort of the end of their career, we were quite devastated because we weren't going to go on to another games. Mm. And uh, then there was the other group who, while were equally devastated, then went on to 1984. Um, and so I actually did a piece of research looking at, you know, one of the early pieces of research, I think, in looking at transition from sport and how difficult that is, in essence, for all athletes, because it's a transition, it's huge. And of course, I think it's, it's now even more in sport because athletes... Um, at the Olympic level can be professionals in the sense they can actually make money and make a good living. And so it makes it a longer career, which is good. And yet at the same time, it's inevitable that you're going to leave that profession at the very latest, sometime between 30 and 35, depending on the sport, et cetera. So you, you have a whole other life in front of you and how do you make that transition? So it was one of the early pieces of research and so I sort of started to discover it was a it was a good um it was a good thing for me to do that helped me deal with my disappointment but it also got me very interested in doing in doing research and thinking about well what else could I learn about sport that could help others so do you become sort of professorial first or do you become con consultative first in your in your exploration of your professional <laughs> practice well then I went on to do a PhD and so then you know and do another piece of research and looking sort of at how our best athletes prepared psychologically for competition and winning medals um but I really was a consultant first um 
and love doing that. But uh, in the profession of sports psychology, it's hard to make a living. And so at some point I had an opportunity to go in and run a program at University of Ottawa. And so went, went, then started down the academic route and sort of now have combined the two. Um, and it's in my mind, a nice combination. Mm-hmm. So who was your first, who was your first client? And do you remember, do you remember oh, yeah. how that, how, how that person became your first client? Well, my first client was actually the long track speed skating team. And okay. It was shortly after, um, you know, I'd retired. Um, so I hadn't, I hadn't completed my PhD at the time, but I so remember because, you know, I competed in 1500 primarily. I mean, I ran 802, but, and it's, it honestly, 1500 has to be one of the least, if not the most non-technical events in any sport. And I remember, so starting to work with the speed skaters and they would always tell me all their technical cues they needed to think of. And, in my mind, because of course I was this at that time young, you know, still maybe a little bit cocky athlete, and and thought, oh, for God's sake, you know, just skate because that's what you would do in fifteen hundred meters. You would just run. I mean, there's there's definitely some economy involved in running, and then there's tactics in those races. But still, it's not very technical at all. And but I would, I, at least I was smart enough to not say anything, and I would just listen to them. And then of course, once I tried long blades, and I, I observed them for a short while, I saw it was very technical. So it was. It was a great group to work with. I worked for them for, uh, I, if I recall correctly, a couple of Olympic games, and you know they at that time speed skating long track was winning a lot of medals, um, and it was a very successful team with a lot of great athletes. So I learned a lot as I started to work with them, and hopefully they learned a little bit from me as I was starting out. What was it? Do you remember or can you pinpoint um, a particular? element of what you learned call it book smart learning in school that when you deployed or employed it in in the real world it really didn't work or didn't make sense and you had this kind of moment of discovery of no you've I've got to look at it differently than than maybe I learned it in school it's such a great question and I think I think the skills that we utilize to enable athletes to be well prepared are actually good skills but the key piece is how you interact with the athlete and actually listen to them and care about them Mm. and sort of listen to what they're struggling with and so that's definitely the combination that I learned and I, I do think it was a huge advantage for me to have been an athlete and to have you know done well in some cases and and thought sometimes I was better than I was. And so you have to learn that lesson. And then also to have failed, like, mm-hmm. and to have stuff taken away from you. We wanted, I mean, that's how I would put it, that I didn't think was fair. And so to live those experiences. So I think that's great. But to come back to your, or very useful, like a key piece of why I think I've worked well with, with the athletes that I've worked with. Um, but I think the piece in answer to your question is that, you know, we sort of have, maybe not so much anyways, but when I learned sports, like, you know, sort of a, a, a hierarchical way of way to introduce the skills. And what I learned was that I needed to start where the athlete was. So I would start sitting with them and just saying, so what do you think you need to work on? And it didn't matter what they said. We worked on that. And of course, as I got to know them, I thought, oh, they need these other pieces too. But if you start where that 
individuals at, then you start to develop that relationship. You start to help them and then they're more open to learning to other pieces as opposed to coming in and saying, okay, well, this is how the book says to do it. And so you do it that way, which Mm -hmm. I really think is not very productive for certainly not, maybe not for any athlete at any age, but certainly not for high performance athletes. So it was really learning. You start where if I was to say client or athlete is, and then work with them on that. And then your expertise, and you could probably say the same thing, Scott. I mean, you see someone and you, you think they need a bunch of stuff, but you start where they're maybe interested in going and then you build that relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's a really powerful point that you make because I think it is maybe the thing that uh, call it the, the youthful exuberance kind of misses in the beginning is this sense that really everything is very relational. And once you have a relationship, then if you've got the goods, so to speak, technical goods, those goods are much more deliverable and much more effective than they would be if you don't have the relationship for sure. It's, it's such a critical piece and what it enables me to do really effectively um, is that when you have that, then we're, when we're in that critical moment on the hill or on the ice or on the field and the athlete is really scared, nervous about what, what if this doesn't happen, you have that deep relationship where you can say, well, okay, remember all this work and remember what you did with your coach. Remember, you know, these pieces, you know, it's not the end of the world and here's how we're going to get through today in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need to have that relationship, absolutely, because they, they won't tell you that otherwise. You won't have that conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is such a critical piece. And what is it about, to, to play off of that a little bit, what is it about what you do professionally that you're really in love with, like that you really fell in love with? Uh, mm-hmm. Is it, is it uh, figuring things out? Is it helping somebody see something they don't see for themselves? What, what are you in love with in, in your profession? Okay, quick break here to tell you about reconditioning. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. Finally, our Reconditioning Mastery Mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. Yeah, that's such a good question too. But what I'm in love with is is working with the athletes. And and I, I mean, they 
I mean, I work mostly with, you know, athletes who are already pretty good. I, I work with younger athletes, but not predominantly for sure. Um, I rarely say no. So um, I'm not so good at that part, but I, I just love helping them uh, or enabling them to learn how to manage that anxiety of competitive sport um, because it ruins so many good performances and, and often they know it implicitly or, but they, they can't articulate it in a way that then serves them well in that stressful moment of the Olympic Games or World Championships or a Olympic qualification or the World Cups or whatever. So, you know, I enjoy, uh, I mean, I guess helping is the best word, but enabling them to learn those skills. And, and also in many cases getting, I mean, there's many athletes I've worked with over the years that I'm still friends with some that are some closer than others and and some I'm not in touch with but I would say that many of the athletes you know sometimes we just fire off an email sometimes I go out and have dinner with them if I'm in the city and that's pretty cool um mm -hmm. in in having some level of friendship so and and knowing you played a role in in helping them do their best in Olympic games mm -hmm. um and that's that's pretty fun What's your what's your biggest strategy for creating a relative autonomy in the athlete? I mean, one of the tough things about your profession is that knife's edge between being helping somebody really see things and find the right solution sets for themselves and also being potentially an, an enabler for them or or uh, them not them not being able to survive without the the oh, sports yeah. psych or what have you. What's what are some of your trade secrets for just just you know, climbing that edge, but never going over it. And I'm sure there's been moments where you have, because we all, yeah. we all have made that mistake. It's again, another great question. Cause it's one of the, I think the worries of coaches and the criticisms of the profession. I mean, my, I always see my job is that when we get to the major situation at the end of the season, whether that's a world championships, Olympic games, a qualifier is that the athlete actually has all the tools and they don't need me. And I did do before some Olympic games, I was on, you know, CTV national or something where, you know, somebody asked me, whoever that interviewer was said, you know, what do you actually do at Olympic games? And I said, well, my objective is I do nothing. And, and I said, and I, I made a joke like, and, but don't tell anybody that. And he said, well, you know, it's too late. You're on national television, but it's true. Like my, I consider, you know, when athletes say to me, when we're in that environment, I'm good. I got it. That's fantastic. Like I don't want to be needed. Um, mm -hmm. There's a play, there's a role where you have to learn those skills just as it is in every profession where we enable athletes to be well-prepared, whether that's strength and conditioning or exercise, physiology, nutrition, but we, they are the ones that have to go out uh, and actually do it. So my goal always is that they're very independent. Um, I don't want them to need me. Um, the re you know, and my, then my argument with having sports psychology individuals at a games is it's such a stressful environment. It, it inevitably something comes up that they need to talk about and work through. So we get back to the place we need to be. And that's happened. I would say, almost always, if not always, but it, but it's little things and you've done the work so it doesn't take much time. So I, mm -hmm. I think your question is really important because my, my simple answer is I'm trying to, to enable them to learn those skills. So they don't, they don't need me. They, they actually know how to do it. Mm -hmm. 
You you reference to, and I think it's an important uh, point to to talk a little bit about. You really are part of a generation of practitioners in your profession that uh, cut the wake, so to speak, of of introducing this profession to performance athletics. Like you you probably didn't have access to much of that when you were in your career, yeah. and th- then it came on the stage, and obviously some people you know, did well through it. Some people fumbled through it. There was opinions about it, the value of it. Uh, you had the coaches who, you know, were resistant to it, et cetera. Talk a little bit about that period, about the period of, of having to sort of fight those fights to make it something that it understood that how valuable it is. And then we'll talk a little bit of how, how it's transitioned into being such an important yeah, it part. Is, it is such a huge transition. I mean, for sure, as an athlete, I didn't have this help um, as an athlete, um, until the very end of my career. And basically at the very end when I was just, you know, trying to deal with the boycott and that's where, you know, I talked to Terry Orlick and he helped me gain perspective on that. Okay. It's really, really terrible, but it's not the end of the world. And you're still going to have a good life. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but at the time you're just in this and you're just bitter, angry, disappointed, crushed, whatever, you know, um, And that really helped. And so I saw how that could be so instrumental because I literally, I walked out of there and I was different. I mean, it still, it wasn't like perfect, but I I thought, okay, yeah, this isn't the end of the world. So, you know, and, 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 and I worked from, you know, 19, I think I first started working back in sort of 84, 85 with the speed skating team. And they seemed very amenable to that, but most coaches and athletes still didn't really want to have anything to do with it. So it has been a remarkably good, although too long in my books, but still we're kind of there where I think a lot more coaches and athletes and team leaders and high performance directors do understand the value in sports psychology and the role it can play. So to me, that's very exciting. And You know, I just tried in the early days to work really well with athletes and and not and and stay in the background and not, you know, interfere with processes until I had gained credibility with the team, like not to push hard. Um, And, you know, you could argue different ways of doing that, but that's certainly so that I slowly built up the trust of of the coach and, you know, of the hyper. I don't even know if they were called high performance directors then, but you know, whoever was leading that team so they could see, okay, there was a piece here that helped with the team or the athletes, but I wasn't trying to tell them how to do anything Mm -hmm. in terms of the team. So I, from my perspective, that's how I built my relationships with the various sport organizations that I've worked with because, you know, slowly over the years I grew into where for sure I did the work with an athlete but then I started really ensuring the coach was part of that process um and then that the the leader of that team was very much part of that process too because you know and then as we introduced more practitioners how they could always they how they could each see their role and understand you know, when you're not needed, that's a good thing in most cases and, and, and build an effective team. So I certainly, my role sort of evolved into a much, has in some cases evolved into a much broader one in a good way. Um, Mm -hmm. But the transition is, I I think, I still think there's still coaches and athletes who don't think it's necessary. And I find that sometimes a tragedy when they then don't perform at Olympic games when they, they could have, I think, although we never know. Um, but I think lots have changed in the field for sure. 
Well, it's interesting because through my career, I mean, what I've kind of come to discover anyways at the highest levels, I, I feel like when you get into your sort of top 15, top 30 dynamics of, of any of the, the big sports, especially the individual sports in the world, talk about tennis, golf, et cetera. The, yeah. the, the, the thing that really fundamentally sets the, the best apart from, from the next best is this mental game, their ability to really yeah. be steely when they need to, et cetera. What, what would you say are the three attributes of, of psychology, call it, of, as, a, as a generic term that you've seen are the great strengths for those who are successful in sport? Um, well, you can probably guess what they are, but I would say that I've sort of narrowed it in a, in a high, at a high level into three, three skill sets in a sense. Um, one is that they really <clears throat> are able to focus effectively and pay attention to the right things at the right time. So if you're thinking a tennis match that, uh, that you're, you know, whenever you're serving or receiving that you're there actually paying attention to the right things and you're not distracted by lots of other things. Um, that's one. Two is that you can, you, you can affect and you can do that effectively on a very, very consistent basis, which is easy to talk about and not easy to do as we know. Hmm. And two, second one is that you can manage and there's so many different ways to say this, but I, I think perhaps the best way to say it is your activation level. So you know, how aggressive you need to be in a hockey game or a soccer game or a tennis match against someone versus, um, you know, a 1500 meters or, you know, a, um, a 5,000 meters on in speed skating is it's a different level of aggression and activation. Um, and so that you're able to find that based on what the sport demand is and also based on your, who you are, what your personality is. And again, consistently do that. And, and, and this is all under the umbrella of a very stressful environment, right? You're trying to win something or yeah, basically win something. And then the third piece is that it is that learning piece. And again, we call that analysis. We call that assessment. We call that a debrief, but you're actually learning from each of those competitions. And, you know, it's a bit of the norm now, but back when I started, like our teams would go away and teams, athletes, well, they'd go away and they'd, they'd have a great result and they wouldn't ever really analyze why it was good and they'd have a terrible result and everybody would, you know, cry and get drunk or whatever and not learn from that. And so I think as we started to put in place over the years, the learning from each of those, like if it was a really good competition, what, what enabled that to happen? And how were you in that environment? And, and if it wasn't good or it was medium or whatever, you know, what sort of occurred? And I think, I think those are the three skills that you really, and, and you're able to do that in an incredibly uh, stressful environment where the expectations are high so that you can be the right activation level. And in most cases, in most cases, that's, that's calming yourself down from an arousal standpoint. But again, that varies depending on the sport demands. Um, but even in, even in the game of hockey where you need to be super aggressive, you still need to be thinking about where your line mates are and where the puck is. And you still need to be conscious and processing to some degree, but mm -hmm. I would say those are the three key skills. And when you, 
you know, I always say you have to be physically well prepared. You need a good coach. You need the tactics or technique or whatever that is. And you need to be healthy physically and nutritionally. And, and once we get all those things, there's way more athletes than three that can win one of those medals in any Olympic games. And so the people who do, the individuals who do are those who then have this final piece where they're, they're at that right level of activation and they're paying attention to the right pieces. And I'll add, actually, I'm going to add a fourth <laughs> if I may. And mm-hmm. that's recovery. Um, because folk and, and recovery, obviously physiologically, but also neurologically or psychologically, because, you know, um, focus takes a huge amount of energy just to be paying really close attention to something in a good way. And you need to recover from that. And, and, and that, um, well, that, that's one of the reasons I went to start to do binary feedback because athletes didn't understand how to do that. And so I would, I mean, there were several times at least that I got to an Olympic Games where an athlete would say, I can't wait till it's over. And you know, it's already over then because so, the stress has been going for so long, they can't manage anymore. So well, it is that re- recovery piece. So sorry, long-winded answer, but I would say there's four then. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting, and I, and I and I wonder if you could elaborate from that perspective on sort of call it the new generation of of what's going on out there, because obviously you've been an, an advocate for bioneural feedback and some of the things that you've done around that, and you know we're starting to see the brain we're we're on yeah. un, we're starting to unravel the brain more and. In my world, the the brain's reflection point on on movement and quality of movement is being sort of looked at more and more. Motor control, etc., and even how people yeah. learn, how people retain information, what is what is cued, and what they you know. There's a lot of new stuff yeah. going on out there. Um, what's exciting for you as a as a person in this in this industry now that you see uh, coming along? Well, I think there's, there's so much we still don't understand about the brain, but I, I think we have lots of good research going on. And you're right, from, in sport, from a motor scale perspective and learning, as well as from a more straight up psychological perspective. But, and I think the physiologists and the psychologists are having better discussions, I think, so that we're working bet, more effectively together to understand the whole person, not just you know, because we look at one part, they look at the other, and it's like they forget we have a neck there. Um, I mean, I, I think the reason I've kept doing the binary feedback is I think it's a great tool to help athletes sort of see themselves on the screen and actually start to learn they can make changes physiologically and neurologically that help them both in primarily those two things are two states of being focused and being in a recovery state and learning how they can shift those states at will when they decide to, like, I want them to come out of the lab. You know, I say, I'm giving you the tools here, how you use them then depends on you and what you're being asked to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, an interesting new piece from that is, and I I think in, I I think in five, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's going to be 10 years is because the problem with looking is that we might have mobile EEG where we can actually look at what, what an athlete is, how their brain is functioning while they're actually competing. We're not there yet because uh, the, unless we could, you know, I'm not going to go there uh, because the EEG is just, you know, stuck with conductance on their head. So the artifact is huge, but there we're getting there and that will be fascinating if we can actually get an accurate read on what's mm-hmm. going on in an athlete's brain while they're playing hockey or while they're playing tennis or while they're speed skating. 
Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating one. Talk talk about uh, you mentioned one piece there, which is really actually something has always been a bit of a a bane of my my uh, professional uh, career is this idea of people cross pollinating in the sense that they we're not in stuck in our silos and we have an appreciation for what each other does. And I've always found you know. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I really have respected and enjoyed in our conversations and professional engagement is your um, your sensitivity to your to the other practitioners and the other people who are contributing to the whole, so to speak, of that athlete. Not everybody gets that. What is what is it that people need to get more about not being stuck in their specialization and their their silo and sort of this broad broader understanding of what's going on. Yeah, and that's that is such a critical question for for high performance sport. Is I think, you know, every one of the professions that now work with um, high performance athletes and teams are critical. But when you're critical, depends on the situation. And so, I, I think you know when we've done it really well, we have you know, regular meetings through a season with everyone there talking about how is this, in a really good way, how is this athlete doing from a nutrition standpoint, from a training standpoint, from a strength standpoint, from a, and with the, with the medical docs, from a, you know, health and wellness and injury perspective. And so, you know, it, it's as a practitioner, really understanding that all of those pieces are critical, um, and we're all trying to get them all right. So all of us aren't needed at different times. We're all going to be needed at some of the time and, and recognizing that, but also respecting the other professions. Because if, you know, I might think someone really needs to work on, on the sport psychology skills, but if they're not training effectively or they're not showing up at the gym, then we've got a bigger problem and that actually should become the priority. And once we get that straightened, then we can, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, that dialogue among practitioners is so important. And I think I've definitely been involved over the years in seeing that shift in a really good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's an important way. And what I just want to also ensure is that the coach is very much a part of that because they are the ones that are key to the performance in the end, because they're the ones uh, out there every day with the athletes. So they're a critical component. Sometimes some folks forget them and I don't want that to happen. <laughs> um, talk about um, the challenges of being or doing what you've done and both the professional capacity of it and the demand of it and also being a mom. How did you, how did you juggle those things and what was challenging about doing what you do and then seeing your, your child grow and, and their their growth, personal growth and psychological demands around that and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, both my kids, they're adults now, um, but they were both involved in sport. Um, one quite a bit more seriously than the other. Um, both pretty talented. Um, so it was, uh, I mean, as a mom, you have to step back from that and not be so involved that I, I think I was pretty good at that. It was hard. It's not easy, but you know, and let the coach take over. But I, I think, um, you know, and not, um, not pushing them to do anything that they didn't want to do, but providing them with the opportunities. I know everyone says that, but I think that's what we should all try to do. And then what your child decides to, to live with or work with is, is, is good in the end. Um, 
And I think, you know, I did, when my kids were little, they, I did travel a fair bit with teams, et cetera. So you're always trying to balance that one's home life and one's work life. So that is never easy. I'm not sure that's ever going to get easier. Um, you know, but just, I mean, one of the things I tried to do was practice my skills as when I would come home as a good listener and, uh, supportive versus coming in and being the drill sergeant and telling them how to do things. Cause sometimes that's what I wanted to do. And they gave me some good feedback as well. You might be good at listening to your athletes, but you're not listening to us. So <laughs> I had to practice that skill at home as well as in my work life. Well, what, what would be a small piece of advice you would give to uh, a new mom today when who's dealing with that same stress of wanting to have their career and wanting to do what they're doing. When you look back, what did you, what did you take too seriously that you recognize now? that you should have been a little less hard on yourself about. Yeah. Um, you can come back if you want me to answer. I, I guess I would answer. I was thinking, you were, I guess what I would say in terms of advice before you said the other part of being too hard on yourself. Um, I mean, maybe I tried to be too perfect in both worlds and you know, you, you can't, it's not very easy to do that, but I think, you know, it's always a choice. I mean, I, I, I'm so glad I had children and I loved, I stayed home with them for a number of years where there were a number of years where I didn't do anything. I didn't work. Um, and for sure that delays one's career and you worry about it at the time. And, you know, you never know what's going to evolve, but things do happen if you're good at what you do. And I know that's easy to say at the end of one's career rather than at the beginning, but I, I'm glad I spent that time. Um, but I, I loved being at home with them. And then, and then I loved and continue to love working with athletes. So, mm. you know, find what you're, you, you love. I mean, I know everybody says this too, but you know, what do you love to do? And if, if somebody just, if, whether that's, you know, the dad or the mom want to stay home with their kids, but that's what you love to do, then do it. Like stuff mm -hmm. will work in the end somehow. Well, I think I think it's a it's a truism. It's a it's an important point because I think when you're younger, sometimes, uh, and this is one of the things that I've learned from doing the podcast over the last year. And most people have the same sort of reflective uh, mm. posture: is that we're we're in too much of a hurry when we're younger, and our perception is that if we don't do this now, then somehow we're going to lose that opportunity. And you 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 can come back to it. And in fact, you can change careers multiple times. You can change directions multiple times. Um, and it's always going to be there. It may not be perfectly easy, but, you know. Yeah. And I think it's what I, what I try to help athletes do. And, you know, there's probably many athletes out there who would say, you know, and this is that, that I help them with perspective. Um, and this is what, you know, Cheryl Bernard's team who won the silver medal in curling in, in, uh, in Vancouver would say is that, um, you know, the biggest thing I helped them with, and in essence, to calm the nerves so that they could play well, but was to, it's not the end of the world out there. Yes, we want to play really good. Uh, we want to be really good at, um, at curling, but at the same time, you know, if it doesn't all work out and we don't win a medal or we don't win gold and they didn't, it's not the end of the world. So it is that perspective. And I think I've brought that to a lot of athletes in terms of thinking, I mean, we never know how many Olympic games we have, but at least we have four or five years of this. So if everything isn't perfect this year, we've still got time to work on things and get, because you're absolutely right, Scott. I mean, we, we, we get so narrow, we don't see the bigger picture. And, 
I think for sure, when I was younger with my kids, I thought, okay, if I don't do all these things now, I'm never going to have that opportunity. And of course, over the years, you learn that's not necessarily and hopefully not ever the case. Mm -hmm. It just takes you longer to do things. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we have lots of years to live to do those. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to read you um, out of my little book from it's called The Day You Were Born was a numerology meets astrology. I do this with all of the people who I interview able to your birthday was July 5th, correct? Mm. You you just had a birthday. Happy birthday. I did. Um, your purpose is uh, you're a cancer five to share your sensitivity, your keen perception, your unique insights with others so that you may experience new ideas and solutions to your problems while at the same time expanding your sense of self. Work spares us from these e- from these evils, boredom, vice and need. Cancer fives can always fit my lighting's not great here, fit uh, one more thing into their schedule. Workaholic and restless, Every everything must be in motion. They are they're busy to uh, as a bee, the killer kind, and what they, they kill is you. Limits are a must. They plan to, to slow down, but most things most – things stay on their head in their head mercury makes them analyze everything in everyone still nobody gets things done like cancer fives slowing down is a necessity and when they see the results of their sharing they'll never doubt the power of unity it's not so much how busy you are but why you are busy the bee is praised the mosquito is is swatted marie (laughs) o'connor <laughs> and it was interesting reading that before I got on because I said, yeah. you know, like that's the penny I know she's always. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also pretty good at sitting yeah. on the dock and doing nothing, so I think I can <laughs> slow down. Yeah. That's good. Well, I got to kind of bring this to a wrap because I've got a jet soon. So I wanted to finish by saying, if you if you went back and saw um, Penny after the 1980 games. Um, and sort of in that transition phase of your life, what would you say to her? Well, I think what I would have said in the, in the 76 to 80 phase, and I would have said, enjoy each moment a bit more than you are. So that actually speaks to that quote, because I think um, I was pretty driven to run faster and see how good I could be in the world. And I think, I probably didn't enjoy it quite as much as I could have. Um, And I've often said, one of the things I often say is I wish I could go back with a 20 year old body and a whatever age old brain um, (laughs) and compete again. Um, Cause it'd be, maybe it'd be, maybe it'd be really good. Who knows? But um, so I would have, I would just say, you know, slow down and enjoy the moment a bit more. Cause I, I'm not sure I did that very well. Some of them I did, but not enough probably. Awesome. That's a beautiful way to finish. Thank you for taking your time with me today. It's been fabulous to catch up with you and get a little bit of the history of Penny. Thanks, Scott. (laughs) Have a nice day. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.